Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, Stephen. Hello, how are you? All right. Oh, it's so exciting to have you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll just save that thought and see if we can retain it until the end. <laughs> oh, that'd be brilliant. <laughs> Long hot days in the shade of some big old tree. Making daisy chains and watching all the honeybees. Good morning, Jane. Are you alright? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good. And I believe we've got a wonderful guest today. Yeah, we've got Stephen, who's got Beecraft magazine. And um, he's with us to talk all things Beecraft and bees with us, because there's nothing he doesn't know about bees. Nothing. Yeah, I think you got the wrong Stephen anyway, because I'm not sure I know that much about bees. But anyway, I'm, I'm Stephen Fleming. I'm co-editor of Beecraft. <laughs> yes, you, you, you are co-editor of Peacraft. <laughs> You know all about peas, but not bees. Oh, no, we've got the wrong person. <laughs> Tell me one fact about peas and one fact about bees. One fact about peas? I found a great difficulty finding some in the supermarket yesterday for the neighbour. I'm doing her shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, second, uh, about bees, a uh, strange fact about bees. Did you know there are streaker bees? Really? Yes. Oh. Streaker bees? Yes. Tell us more. When a swarm is trying to find where it's going to go, do you know how they get directions to move home? No. Tom Seeley and some researchers in the United States managed to video bees in a swarm, and they established that what they call streaker bees fly across the top of the swarm, and the other bees can see these streaker bees uh, against the sky, and the streaker bees go extra fast, and they know where the new home is. Well, it doesn't mean that they they take their fur off then. Probably not, but it's so so fast you wouldn't see it on the video anyway. <laughs> and they streak to the front of the swarm, and then it seems that they probably drop down somehow and make their way to the back of the swarm again slowly, then go up to the top again and streak across the top of the swarm. And that's how the swarms uh, find their new home. Oh, that's amazing. Did you know that, Esther? I thought little scout bees go off to find the new home or to make sure that everybody knows where they're going. That's right. And the scout bees are probably the streaker bees because they know where they're going. Oh. And in fact, we've got a lovely article in the latest issue of Beecraft about these uh, nest site scouts. Again, Tom Seeley telling us a bit more. Not talking about streaking this time, but just how much work they do and how versatile they are. Fascinating uh, group of bees. And is that, are they sort of born into that Purpose. Well, I don't think we know that yet. Um, they, they certainly they adopt that role anyway, but I don't think there's any real understanding of how they are selected or how mm. they become such. It, it becomes a role that they take on. There's probably something underlying this that we don't yet understand. I thought when you said that, that they ran onto football 
pictures naked <laughs> and uh, made a fool of themselves. <laughs> well, they probably ran onto the uh, the Rose Bowl cricket ground near me in in Hampshire because there was a swarm there a few years ago. So yeah, there would have been streakers in that field. <laughs> out so many things haven't we Jane on this so many lovely things it's been amazing go on then Jane what what question would you like to start with have you been stung by a bee Stephen (laughs) have I been stung (laughs) by a bee Uh, more times than I could begin to count but the more it happens the the less it the less it affects me Mm. Uh, it's very it's very rare for it to have any any significant effect these days Although I did get stung in a rather awkward place uh, last summer, but but I don't think we should go. Oh there. well, Esther goes there on a regular basis, so please don't hold back. <laughs> it was a particularly nasty set of bees. I don't know why they turned so nasty that day, and uh, they followed me from the apiary, and I went off, and I well, I went to relieve myself, and well, you know what happens next. <laughs> Oh dear, nasty. that's bad. So they didn't like give up. They they followed you all that way until that moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know incredible. where it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, that queen has been changed, so they're now much nicer bees. Yeah. Do you think the genetics slowly change in a colony and they can sort of lose their nice qualities and, and end up a bit meaner? I, I think there are two things going on with with the uh, defensiveness of colonies, because mm-hmm. of course we speak of colonies being defensive, not aggressive. Yeah, of course, they're only defending what is theirs. Yeah. And uh, and I was just talking to my fellow co-editor yesterday, Richard Richard Rickett, mm-hmm. and he was saying that he had some uh, bees that were normally very placid, but yesterday they turned quite nasty, mm-hmm. and he couldn't understand why until he noticed some badger scrapings near the hives. And so our best guess is that in some way the badgers disturbed them and put them in a bad mood. And certainly I've occasionally come across my colonies, good colonies, that that just for a day or so turn not very nice. And I often think, well, maybe it's a deer has knocked into the hive or or something environmentally has happened. Uh, It is a strange one. It's a combination, I think, of environment and genetics. And the genetics you can change relatively quickly with with a new queen the environment you just have to see what might be bothering them in the environment bees are very sensitive to to all sorts of things mm. uh, i had a nice one recently uh you know we had that very changeable weather mm-hmm. and i've got an observation hive in the in my office here and it was a lovely looking afternoon but it had been a bit changeable and the sun was out and i thought oh i fancy going out for a bike ride this afternoon and I was getting ready to do that when I saw all the bees coming back into the observation hive. I thought, well, the sun's still shining. What's up? And I waited, and 20 minutes later, there was a nasty hailstorm moved in. Oh, oh, they sensed it. They must have sensed it. So they're, they're sensing all sorts of things that we have no How idea wonderful. about. wonderful. These bees that I've got are of quite a feisty temperament. The guy did say to me, these are quite defensive, you know, and they've got a good guards and you might have to requeen them after a couple of years. And when I looked at the entrance, the like guards were just all there, like in a big line, you know, like, I was like, all right, OK, yeah, they really are. These are, these are good. And they, since I went to have a look at them, they've been out in really cold temperatures, actually. Mm. When me and Jane, we put them into the nuke, 
there was loads of them, wasn't there, Jane? And, yes. You know, yeah. it was quite an amazing sight, and they've already filled up a super. You're you're lucky. We're we're much slower out here this year. Although the bees are very active, I would normally have a super becoming pretty full, maybe into the second super, mm. but not this year. They're, mm. they're, they're healthy, but the big difference here this year is that there's so little oilseed rape around, oh. at least in my area. The area of oilseed rape has gone down dramatically this year, and the, the bees aren't able to collect that nectar. So my spring harvest is going to be well down this year. Oh. But I'm not too worried about that because oilseed rape is so difficult to, to extract because it sets so quickly in the comb. You probably don't have it no. in, in your apiary no. in, in London. Yeah. No. You've got to get it off at exactly the right time while it's still liquid because it crystallises so quickly. Mm. But this year I think I'm going to have a different sort of spring harvest, so it's, it's quite Where fun. Where about you again, Stephen? In Hampshire. I'm, I'm almost at the foot of Watership Down. Oh, right, Okay. It actually exists, and I have I have bees on Watership Down and a couple of other places. So, Stephen, how did you get into beekeeping? Well, that's that's a funny story uh, because I, I was born in Belfast, and when I was seven or eight years of age, uh, the family went across to visit my uncle in Hampshire, and he was living in a magnificent house with a lot of grounds. And there were bees and chickens and an orchard. Mm. And it was fantastic. This was uh, a real new world to me. You know, the, it was lovely and warm. Of course, it was probably July, so it would have been warm. But this was a magical world to me that you just strolled at breakfast. You'd stroll out into the garden, go collect the eggs, see the bees, have a look to see how the apples were coming along the trees. Made a huge impression on me as a seven or eight year old. Mm. Then I went on. Uh, to do uh, geography, I did geography degrees at university, and eventually came to live here in Kingslayer in Hampshire. And I'd always thought, when I move to the country, I'm going to keep some bees, mm-hmm. and that's exactly what I did. So I got some bees and really enjoyed it. And then I went down to my uncle Bill, and he still had the hives there, and that the hives that he had belonged to his father-in-law. He died long before I was even born. And I started looking after the bees for Bill because Bill would just say, oh, I'm just a smoker boy. I don't know anything about this at all. Um, I said, well, I'll give you a hand. I'll look after the bees. Now I'm looking after my own. So we would go. He would be the smoker boy, smoking the bees, keeping them down in the box. And I'd be going through the hive, uh, looking and inspecting them and using various bee terminology. And he'd say to me, you know, that's just like my father-in-law. It's like going back decades hearing you speak. He says, it's all sex and violence in there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and so we, we chatted on, and I said, I said, Uncle Bell, how did you manage to get this house? How did you manage to come to live here? You know, we, we're from a fairly modest income family in Belfast, but this is just magnificent, this place. And, and, and I also knew that the father-in-law had been a miner and had been ill, pneumonicosis or some sort of lung disease. And the, the, the story had always been in the family that, well, he must have got compensation and moved down south to the good air. But Uncle Bill said, well, actually, he won the pools. <laughs> he won the football pools. Ooh. And he decided that he would stop living in Lancashire, where he'd been born, and he didn't have to go down the mine anymore, and he would move south to this lovely southern England atmosphere. So I always think if it wasn't for the football pools, I would probably never be a beekeeper. <laughs> Interesting. That's amazing. It is amazing. There's a lovely little addition to that story because my cousin, she now lives in the New Forest, 
And over lockdown, I was talking to her uh, on the phone, and she just casually mentioned diaries of her father-in-law. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Did he mention anything about bees? Oh, yes, I think he did, because he, he, he did a lot of gardening, and, and he, he recorded a lot about uh, the garden and the weather and, and things. So I said, oh, I'd be really interested in seeing those diaries. So just last Sunday, I went down to see her, because we could, and have a socially distanced meeting in the garden. And she gave me ten little diaries from the 1940s. Do you remember the little Let's <laughs> diaries? Like a little Collins yeah, diaries? Yeah, my mum had them. Right. So it's like tweets. Every day is, it's like a tweet because you couldn't write very much in them. Yes. But there he recorded everything that was happening in the garden and all and about the bees and how much honey he'd taken off. It's an absolute mine of information. So wow. there I'm getting that connection back to him. I never met him, but his character is really coming through in the diaries. I've just started reading them, and some of them are very funny, just, just as a little turn of phrase. It's going to be a great read, and it's going to be very important. I think some academics are going to be very interested in this because he's recording when things were planted, when the bees were bringing in nectar. Oh, my God. All sorts Ooh. of things, which all relates back to climate change. So these are the 1940s, right through the 1940s. Wow. Uh, all this information that he could never have imagined could be so important. Yeah. Absolutely lovely. And the other, the other nice end, part of this story is that it, it used to be when I took up beekeeping, you wouldn't tell many people you're a beekeeper because it was a bit eccentric. The whole atmosphere has changed around beekeeping now and it's very much a very trendy thing to do. It's great and lots of people doing it and its profile has risen enormously. But when I started, you had to know somebody who kept bees mm. before you'd have the, the courage to start perhaps. And I was delighted to hear last weekend that my cousin's daughter is just about to get her first hive of bees this year. Oh, wow. And, she, and so I think it's fantastic that it's going to continue on in the family. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. So can you remember, you know, one of the most sort of eccentric or interesting recordings in the diary that really pinged out to you? Well, I've only just started looking at them, but there's just little things like, uh, oh, it's, it's very, very frosty this morning. This reminds me of that period in Lorna Doone. <laughs> yeah, so he was obviously well read. Yeah. Uh, he also said, oh, another miserable day. <laughs> and it was obviously a bit like Christmas. He said, I wish it was Christmas with was underlined. <laughs> the next day comes along, raining again. Brackets, enough said, close brackets. <laughs> So you really are only in January then, aren't you? You're only in January. <laughs> well, this was July. No, this was June when he was talking about this weather. It was 1945, as I recall, and uh, there wasn't a very good period in June, and he was getting very annoyed by this. Oh. And another bit, he says, raining in today, repairing clogs and making skeps. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. Wow. It's funny, they were obsessed with weather, weren't they? Because my nan wrote a diary and it always started with the weather. And I've written a diary since the age of 12. And as a result, I always start with the weather as well, <laughs> just to keep <laughs> tradition going. <laughs> Stephen, I've got a question for you. You know, when people nowadays say to you, I really want to keep bees, what do you think I should do? What do you say now to them? I would say this is a responsibility, serious responsibility you're taking on. So please learn about them first. Mm -hmm. And some people want to jump straight into bees. And I always think, why don't you just learn about bees for a season first? That's what I did. I, I went to the local beekeeping association, 
So that'll be the first protocol, local beekeeping association. They now run uh, courses. It's been difficult during uh, the lockdown, obviously, but a lot of them have been running courses via Zoom and so on. And you really need to get a feel for the bees to see if it's going to suit you because it is a responsibility. You're looking after livestock when all said and done. You need a very responsible attitude towards them to make sure they're healthy, to make sure swarms aren't going to bother people, and and just to generally make sure you're being uh, sociable about where you keep them. Um, so just do your homework. Uh, the, the bee literature is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Lots of really good introductory books. And and then you just get into the whole of bee literature, which is just amazing. You know, I, I just say that beekeeping is a, a microcosm of the world. You can learn so much through beekeeping. When you're in a bee community, it seems like everybody's keeping bees. But do you think there's more people keeping bees now in the country, in the world perhaps, than there were a few hundred years ago or something like that? It's very difficult to get numbers on this. But one thing just that you mentioned that that I should say is that apart from learning about bees, make sure that where you're going to put your bees is sufficient forage. Mm. Because we are now finding out that in urban areas that the population of bees is growing and they need forage Mm. to to remain healthy. So that's another thing to check out while you're learning about bees. I'm in the country, so it's much easier. There's lots of forage going here for them. Mm-hmm. But in urban areas, clearly there's, there's a bit of a tussle there, uh, uh, limited forage for limited bees. And, of course, the other pollinators as well. We can't forget them. Mm-hmm. They are so important, and their numbers are declining. Mm-hmm. But back, back to your question about number of beekeepers, I, I would like to look at that. It's a, it's a really good question because there used to be what they would call cottagers, uh, people would, who would have uh, just a few skeps, the, the old straw basket type hives. And so there would have been lots of those. I did a little bit of research on beekeeping in the New Forest. And you know the way it's been regarded over the centuries as very poor land. That's why it became hunting land. Well, there are bee gardens on the New Forest. Ooh. And you can still see them to this day. And there are a lot of them in certain areas. And what's in that bee garden? Well, they're empty today, but you can just about see the outlines of the bee gardens. Little, uh, the ground is raised around, there may be six metres by four metres. They've got a little border around the edge of raised ground, and probably bushes were grown in there. And they picked this up recently through a technology called LIDAR, mm. which is a cross between laser and radar. And, and they've been able to uh, photograph from the air with LIDAR, and then see where these bee gardens are. And there, <clears throat> there are lots and lots of them. Excuse me. Have you got a bee in your throat? Mm. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll just have a glass of honey. Have you so- <laughs> Or a glass of mead. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it, it's making me look again at the new forest, and I wonder if this is historians have missed a trick in looking at the agricultural economy of the new forest and to see the significance of beehives in centuries past because they would have been producing wax and honey. So there was a lot going on. Uh, it's very difficult to put numbers on it, but it got so significant in the New Forest that in the years of tyranny after the Civil War, when the king couldn't get money from Parliament, one of the things he was turned to was finding beekeepers in the New Forest oh. for having these bee gardens. And this went back to a very ancient law with William the Conqueror because to have these bee gardens could interfere with the hunting because they might get in the way of the horses uh, going across the land. 
And so there were lots of fines doled out for a year or two. Uh, that that can be seen in Lindhurst, these days, the, the book uh, showing the legal cases. So there's some really interesting history. As, as for numbers, very difficult mm. to get a feel for that. And the other thing to think about, of course, is that in those days they were keeping skeps, which were much smaller than today's wooden beehives. Yeah. So you, you would have to do a very careful analysis to see just how many more bees or, or fewer bees there were then than today. Mm-hmm. Fascinating question. So I'd love to be able to answer your question, but I'm afraid I can't. The hives that we're uh, keeping our bees on mostly are quite old-fashioned, aren't they, really? I've forgotten the actual date when the National Hive and the Langstroth Hive were invented, but they haven't really changed since then. That's right. It all really changed from the skeps, the old baskets uh, that they would keep bees in, and the bees would build a comb whichever way they wanted in the baskets, and you couldn't really get it in amongst to see what was happening without tearing the, the whole nest apart. But then the Reverend Langstroth discovered about the bee space that if you left a certain space, the bees would neither fill it with propolis nor put brace comb, nor build comb in it, and they would act as a passageway. Mm. And so he invented this hive so suddenly you could take these wooden frames that hold the comb, the bees will build their wax comb in the frames, and you could actually lift out frame by frame and for the first time really see what was going on within a hive without destroying it. How amazing. And that transformed beekeeping. What year was that? What what period was that? That was at the end of the 19th century. Right, okay. And there was a lovely piece on Radio 3 recently. Uh, Tim Harford, who's become very well known for his work on the statistics around the pandemic, but Brian Eno had texted him a question. He said, what technology would you take back to the 4th century to be able to use it without being burnt as a witch? <laughs> what, what did he say? A beehive. Really? Because he thought that would be safe to take back to uh, 400 AD. It wouldn't be too radical for people to see. And yet it was an extremely functional way of keeping bees. Mm. I thought it was a lovely answer. Mm. And it makes you stop and think. So that design that you say is old fashioned and has proved how valuable it is. Mm. It really is a terrific design. Mm. And if you work around the bee space, you can do a lot with with bees and be able to examine them and and make sure they're in good health and so on and so forth. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. What do you think about some of these new types of hives that are on the market now? Well, they're, they're all coming back to the same principle very often, um, although the flow hive is one that's quite different. If you could describe it, Stephen, that would be great. The idea was developed in Australia, and 
it was a way of being able to extract honey without opening the hive. But there are lots of issues around it. It wasn't very popular with the traditional beekeeping community. And there are concerns that people wouldn't really be looking after bees properly because they wouldn't be going in and examining the bees. But it has brought a number of people into beekeeping. doesn't work so well in this country because honey tends to crystallize so quickly, relatively quickly, in the hive here. And, the, and for the flow hive to work, the honey's got to be flowing. So with Australian eucalyptus honey, there wasn't much of a problem because it, it flowed and you could turn a crank handle and the honey would come out of the hive, out of these plastic frames, without disturbing the colony and without having to open the hive. But, of course, in this country, if the, if the honey crystallises too quickly, it won't come out. And the crystallising happens because of our temperatures, is that right? No, oh. because of the, the nature of the forage more than anything. Temperature in part, but forage, the oilseed rape, for example, um, which crystallises so quickly in the comb, that can crystallise in the comb literally in days. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So you've got to get it off the hive as quickly as you can. Otherwise, you've got to melt down your comb. Why is that? Why, why does different forage? It's the balance of two sugars in the nectar which determines how quickly it crystallises. I wonder how they sort of even developed skeps or how did they know what to do? Well, they would have started off um, finding nests in trees, as we still do today. And that, that's absolutely fascinating because you learn so much about bees. Some people today are creating log hives I and know. tree hives. By I'd love to. One of those. I'd love to. Have you got one of those, Stephen? Uh, no, I haven't. But I'm, 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 I'm warming to the notion, seeing just how it can happen. Mm. For the moment, I'm looking around the local area to see where there are uh, wild or feral colonies, call them what you will. And we found one last year. Uh, I went to collect a swarm in a nearby farm and he had a silage yard no longer in, in use and it had a partition down the middle. And the partition was about eight, well, probably about 12 feet high and it ran for about 20 metres. There, I'm mixing all my imperial and metrics for you. And it was about um, 15, 20 centimetres wide. I went to collect a swarm there, and I said, do you know where the swarm came from? And he said, oh, yeah, there's a swarm in that silage partition. Well, a good beekeeping friend of mine, Steve Smith, was able to get hold of a, a thermal imaging camera. He had been using it, and it just sent me, that same day, he had sent me a, a, a picture of one that he, a hive that he had seen in a house with a thermal camera. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, oh, have you got a minute? Come around, and let's have a look at this one in the partition. So he came around within the hour, and there we were looking at this nest. We could see the heat coming from it through the uh, marine ply on the on the panels. So we could see there was a nest in the in in the gap in between the panels, in between the two sides of the panel. And then he moved the camera along, and we find five nests. Wow! Five different nests in that panel all together. Wow! Quite amazing. How we closely back. were they? Were they connected to each other or were they living No, separately? they weren't connected. They weren't connected because every now and again in the partition, there were buttons that would block off parts of it. So oh, they couldn't travel from, yeah. from top to bottom. Mm. And so they were in five different sections of this. Oh. An amazing number of bees in one place yeah. with no particular forage around that you could say, oh, that's why they're here. Mm. And we went back in winter uh, to see how many had survived and one hadn't. And we went back last weekend to have a look again with the heat camera. 
And I'm still looking at that, trying to figure out what's happened, because one of the nests seems to have moved. One of them has gone. A, a rat came in and created a hole and seems to have eaten the remains of one of the nests. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've still got five colonies there. But it's, it's really odd. I've got to look at the photographs carefully to see what's happening. Uh, but it's amazing where bees will actually set up home. And in yeah. this case, how close together they were, because that's really unusual to have them yes. so close together. Yes. And we, we still quite, can't quite figure that out. Gosh, so it's, it's uh, so interesting. Would you say that's the most unusual place that you've sort of found them? That is. For, for me, that was definitely that was a, a huge surprise. You know, to find one nest there, yeah, okay. That'd be fair enough to find five. Yeah. It was just ridiculous. It is. I wonder what they've found to forage on round there. That's so... Maybe they're collecting some sort of mineral from the soil. <laughs> I don't know what they do. <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't know. What 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 do you think it could be? It, it is just regular agricultural forage, but there's nothing, hardly anything within 300 metres. So they're having to fly, I would say, half a kilometre before they're finding good forage. But they're prepared to do that, and they obviously like that home. It's a very desirable residence. Right. Uh, I would love to open up to see the nests, but then that would spoil it. You wouldn't be able to put it yeah, back together it again yeah. uh, for the bees. Uh, so we're just going to keep an eye on these over the years to see how they survive. But it's, it's a lovely find, and uh, we're persuading the farmer to look after them. And, and there's even a hole in one of the partitions that he says an, an owl has come to nest in. So it's becoming quite... <laughs> Quite a little nature reserve. And last year we we found a wasp's nest in there as well. Wow, it is desirable, isn't it, as a whole? <laughs> wow. We'll have to start charging for that. Ooh. It could make up a little sort of uh, a little zoo park, couldn't they? Um, I wanted to ask you, Stephen, you set up Beecraft, the magazine. No, Beecraft's been going for 100, 101 years. Oh, really? <laughs> Amazing, isn't yeah. it? So you're, you're, you're the, not 101 the, then? <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm, I may sign it. <laughs> Richard Rickett and myself took over the editorship. Uh, we became co-editors at the beginning of the 101st year. When was that? That was last year. Right. Um, January of last year, we took it over. So we're, what, 17 issues in? But the magazine has been around for 101 wow, years. Wow, I didn't know that. It was started in the first spring after the First World War. Mm, wow, and what... And how did it start? It started with the Kent beekeepers. They were trying to bring themselves together. You know, they'd been through a war. There'd been a huge numbers of bee losses through what was then called the Isle of Wight disease. Beekeeping was having its difficulties, but the Kent beekeepers took this initiative to pull together, to bring their own associations together to produce a publication, which they called Beecraft. Then Surrey, close by, saw what was happening, thought, oh, this is a good idea, let's join in. They joined in, and then over the next several years, lots of other counties joined in until it became uh, a national publication, uh, all from that initiative. But it's fascinating looking back now that the issues faced by the initial editors of Beecraft, there had been a, a world war, there was a pandemic on the rage, Spanish flu, mm-hmm. There had been huge numbers of bee deaths in the years before that, and they were still happening. And you compare that to today, and you can see all sorts of parallels. Wow. Let let me tell you one thing. Okay, here's one for you. If we go back to swarming, there's been a traditional technique around for years that nobody has paid too much attention to, and it's called tanging. You ever heard of tanging? No. No. What's tanging? 
Well, tanging is making a very loud noise with pieces of metal to bring down a swarm. Oh, that was in Honeyland, the film. Mm-hmm. Okay. And okay. the lady was banging something and she was, right. like, singing. Oh, and... that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. It was in Macedonia. Aristotle even wrote about this. So he, he thought there was something in it. You, if you bang some metal together, you can bring down some bees. And in the magazine last month, I wrote a piece saying, you know, we, we hear stories of tanging, but there's some research says, and there's a small bit of research that had been carried out just on four or five swarms and said, well, we can't see anything in it. And we put out a call to readers saying, do any of you practice tanging? And we started to get some responses. And there are people out there who are tanging. And, <laughs> and one in particular, uh, Lucy Frost, gave a lovely description of her tanging. She went out there with her pots and her pans, banging them together, and brought down a swarm, and it came straight down on her head. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't work all the time. If your swarm is high up in a tree and you can't reach it, then get your pots and pans. No, it seems that you need to catch the swarm when it's in a little bit of an indecisive mood, when it's just organising itself to fly off somewhere or maybe even coming into land, uh, yeah. but, but especially when it's gathering itself to fly off. And nobody quite knows what's going on here, but you've had Martin Benchik on your podcast, and mm-hmm. I've been speaking to Martin about it, and he is getting a student to look at that this summer to see what's going on, because we think it's something to do with the vibrations that are set up by the banging of the metal. Mm-hmm. And there's another curious thing that happens. Um, I've got an observation hive here in my office, and mm-hmm. a beekeeper recently told me if I wet my finger and pulled it across the glass, an observation hive is, is glass-sided, and it's just got one frame, uh, three frames, one on top of each other, and you can see the bees. And he said, if you wet your finger and draw it across the glass and make a squeaking noise, the bees underneath will stop dead. Oh. And they do. Oh. And they may think it's a signal from the queen, or it may be some sort of alarm call, but frankly, we don't know what, what this is, what's going on here at all. Um, but there's something about certain vibrations which the bees are picking up on and reacting to. So they're oh, listening. Yeah. But I do pity all the neighbours of beekeepers if, in case people start practising this, because there'll be an awful din this summer if people start trying to tangle bees. Well, Jane's just bought some new pots and pans, so you'll have to try that, Jane, when we get a swarm. In fact, we've got a, a, a reader in Surrey who keeps in his apiary an old watering can with the spout broken off. And he bangs together the watering can and the spout to try to bring down a swarm. Doesn't always work, he says, but um, but sometimes it does. It used to be an old house key and a pan. And they think it was an old house key because it was a tradition of saying, this is my swarm and this is the key of my house. And I'm banging this together so this signals I'm after this swarm. This is mine. Hmm. But that that's amazing. Is it to try and keep them into the hive or would they just come down and land on the nearest tree? Under normal circumstances, they would know where they're going. The scout bees would, would be directing them, like the streaker bees we've told you about, and they would lead into the new nest 
And as they get near the new nest, then the pheromones come into action and the bees locate the nest by a lot of pheromones that are the Nazanov gland that's being put out amongst the bees. And they all then gather and go into the nest, with the new nest with the queen. But here we're talking about bees in flight and probably just starting to fly in some direction. But before they've got their instructions from the scout bees, there's this confusion for them. A sort of uncertainty. Yeah. And they seem to freeze. I have never seen it myself. Um, I'd love to see it. And, and I'm really, really keen to hear what Martin's got to say about this. Martin Benchik, mm, uh, when yeah. he gets this student in action. Would you like to come on our programme again, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> do you know what would be a good idea if we could do it? Mm. I started looking for drone congregation areas. I know mm. I to ask you about that as well <laughs> because the drone congregation you've done a sort of study on it haven't you well a bit of observation i would hesitate yeah. to call the study but just a bit of observation i'll take you back to where it started uh, it was in beecraft i read an article by carl schauler a very well-known beekeeper who was terrific he, he knew a lot about the history anyway carl was looking at drone congregations in his area and this is where the drones come supposedly to meet the Queen and to mate with the Queen. And they happen in particular areas. And they persist even for centuries. Gilbert White, famous naturalist, in 1790s, 80s, 90s, heard something that was very odd and said, I don't know what this is. It's, it's not a swarm, but I can hear these bees and I really don't know what it is. And it transpires it was a drone congregation area, we think, because I've been back to the very same spot that he heard this, and shown that there are, in fact, drones collecting around there. And that's 200 and some years later. So why this particular spot? Why uh, then? Why do you think they're at this well, particular we, spot? Well, we don't know, because if you look around the world and look for the sorts of places that drone congregation areas are, they seem to be different. It's very difficult to get a common strand. And so, for example, in southern England, I could make a good guess, he says arrogantly, but I, I could make a reasonable guess as to where we might find a drone congregation area by looking at Google Earth and looking at some maps. But I wouldn't have a clue oh. in other parts of the world because clearly it's happening in different places there. But here I can see the sort of place that might happen. And so I've started to look for, for drone congregation areas and I found quite a few in my local area. And it'd be great if you could come out one day and do a field recording if we go looking mm. for a, a drone congregation area and see if we can find one. That would be amazing. Watership Down itself, where I have my bees, uh, towards the top of Watership Down is a drone congregation area itself. Mm. And I wonder if there's one on Ali Pali. I'll have a look at the map and, and see what we can see. Um, mm. but, but, but it could be. There's one, intriguingly, as a little one on Glastonbury Tor. Mm-hmm. And it was the only place that I didn't feel like a real idiot walking around with a fishing rod with a queen lure on top trying to lure drones. Everybody just, <laughs> just everyone just took it as normal. Oh, this is normal Glastonbury behaviour. Mm. But, but Stephen, isn't it true that some of these um, stones... Earthworks? Yeah, are in these places where there might be a drone congregation site so people weren't sure what they were or they were listening to these sounds so they marked the spot? Well, that's what Carl... Slightly tongue-in-cheek was writing about back in the 1990s. He said, I wonder if these earthworks were built below drone congregation areas because those who are constructing the earthworks could hear this buzzing above their head and think it was the voice of the gods. Mm. 
So there is a, a correlation there. I don't think there's a, a causal link, but there's, there's definitely a correlation because one of the best ones I find is above a bell barrel uh, quite near here. Oh. And if you stand in the middle of the bell barrel, uh, you get a, a lovely collection of, of drones gathering around the lure. I don't think it's a coincidence because, you know, in those times, people, they didn't understand things like we do. So they wouldn't have known, would they? They wouldn't have known that it was drones or even if they did. They might have thought this is an important place because they're gathering yeah. here. Yeah. Gilbert White didn't know that it was a drone congregation area, but he was such a brilliant observer of nature that he heard them and he, he thought, this is strange. Don't know what this is, but this is strange. And I'm going to record it in my, in my diaries. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until the 19th century that the whole idea of drone congregation areas began to come together. And people began, mm. began to recognise that this is where, where the drones would hang out waiting for the queens. Can you imagine them doing that, Jane, all those drones? What do you think they're saying to each other, all waiting uh, for the queens? I think they've got their little pints of beer. and going, hey, they're coming soon, the lasses. <laughs> I know we're sort of drawing towards the end of our conversation, but uh, Jane, have you got a question? Because I've got a burning question. Oh, you asked your burning question. What do you feel is the future for honeybees? Can I readdress that in another way? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in bees because, always have been, because they seem to me a microcosm of the world. You can see so much going on there. You can learn so much in so many different directions. And when you look at the issues that are facing bees today, it's the issues that are facing everybody. Mm. Mm. It's habitat loss, it's pesticide use, it's climate change, it's invasive species, it's pollution. And the honeybee is the, the canary in the coal mine. It's telling us so much about all those really important issues. Oh, great. Oh, God, I'm, I know, crying I, I, I'm not a crier, but if I was a crier, I would be crying. <laughs> I am, yeah. So I think anybody who's getting involved in bees very quickly begins to realise that very big picture of how um, bees are, are a really good indicator of what's going on in the world and that if we can solve those big problems, the bees will look after themselves. Yeah. The bees will look after themselves anyway. Uh, fortunately, beekeepers are there helping them and, and, and keeping them healthy. But, but the big issues there are all affecting bees, and we really need to tackle the big issues. Yeah. We hope that uh, we get some progress moving on, on all those sorts of fronts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we all became environmentalists, we'd, we'd have a happier planet for everybody. For sure, mm. for sure. Queen Bees is written and created by Esther Coles and Jane Horrocks. It is produced by Claire Broughton, Andy Goddard and John Wakefield and partly recorded at the Hives on my allotment near Crouch End in London. Our title music is Sweet Nothing by Amy May Ellis and Will Cookson. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Queen Bees Pod for pictures and videos from the hive. Queen Bees is a hat trick podcast. It feels so good just to have you around. Hold up. 
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.